at the end of Paul's letter to the Romans and at the end of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians and at the end of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians and at the end of Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul has the same thing to say, and that is, greet one another with a holy kiss. So in our culture, that doesn't really uh, compute. We're not really sure what to do with that. And the nearest cultural thing that we could put it as is greet one another with a holy handshake. So we're going to do something different this morning. I want to encourage you to stand back up and greet somebody nearby whom you don't know or haven't seen for a long time and say hi to them and go. You're encouraged to leave your seats. Leave your rows. <laughs> a good thing. Well, thank you very much. And wasn't that good? Wasn't that, wasn't that nice to get that out of your system, right? And now, you're, now you're not wondering, who's that person over there? You know, now you know. Anyway, let's, uh, before we go to God's word, let's pray. Our God and our Father, we ask that you would open your word to us by your Holy Spirit. May we have uh, listening ears, hearts that receive. And may we have the will to put into practice what you have for us today. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Now, if some of you are thinking that I might start off with a story from the Lord of the Rings or maybe something from the Chronicles of Narnia, you could be excused and forgiven for that. It's entirely natural, but I'm not. Instead, I'm going to start off with uh, an account from another literary masterpiece, which also has been made into a blockbuster movie, The Princess Bride. Yay, that's right. I knew somebody would say yay. And so in The Princess Bride, the hero Wesley has been captured by the wicked prince and the evil count, and he's in the pit of despair. And so his colleagues, uh, Fezzik and Inigo Montoya, go looking for Wesley, and they find him in the pit of despair. And as they look at him, Inigo Montoya says, he's dead. But they decide, against all hope, that they're going to try something, and so they take him to Miracle Max to see if they can get a miracle. And they have him there on the table, and Miracle Max says, well, I'll ask him. And Inigo says, how are you going to talk to him? He's dead. 
and Miracle Max says, Woo-hoo-hoo, look who knows so much. It just so happens here that your friend is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. And so Miracle Max makes this miracle pill, and they give it to Wesley, and he revives, and together they all save the day. We'll just leave it at that, so in case you haven't watched it, we don't spoil it for you. But we're going to see a church today that is like Wesley. Wesley is, or the church is mostly dead, but it's just a little bit alive. And although the Princess Bride is a lot of fun and good-natured silliness, this message to the church at Sardis is a matter of life and death. And, the, and although they talked about a noble cause that Wesley was involved in, this cause is even far more important, far greater. And the church needs something more than a chocolate-covered pill to raise it from the dead. It needs something a lot stronger. So as I read uh, Revelation 3, 1 to 6, please follow along in your Bible or on the screen. To the angel of church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Son of Man will give life unto repentance to his dead church so that he may present us to the Father blameless. That's what we're going to see today from this passage. Let me repeat it. The Son of Man will give life unto repentance to his dead church so that he may present us to the Father as his blameless people. Now, the book of Revelation is a letter to the seven churches. And it, John states that very clearly in Revelation chapter 1. He says, write down what I'm about to tell you and send it to the seven churches. So the entire book of Revelation is a letter to these seven churches. But within the entire letter, there, I there are these seven oracles or prophetic messages, one to each church. 
And this particular one is to the church in Sardis. We've looked before at the, at the oracles to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and Thyatira. Now we come to this oracle to the church in Sardis. And each one of these letters has basically the same structure to it. There's a description of the Son of Man, which comes from John's vision in chapter 1. There's a commendation for the church. There's a rebuke to the church. There are commands and warnings. And there's a promise to the one who conquers. You'll find this basic structure to each one of the letters uh, as you read through them. So it makes it really very easy to outline. And you have the outline there in the bulletin if you print it off. So let's look first at the description of the Son of Man. <coughs> Pardon me. He says, I know uh, he's the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, a- as you probably know, there are many, many, many uh, symbols and illustrations in the book of Revelation. And so the you have to ask, what does he mean by the seven spirits and the seven stars? Well, First of all, the seven spirits is a reference to the Holy Spirit. You can see that in um, chapter 1 where there is this greeting and uh, John says to the seven churches, grace and peace to you from the one who was and is and is to come and from the seven spirits before the throne and from uh, the faithful witness Jesus Christ. So there you've got that Trinitarian greeting. The seven spirits before the throne refers to the, the Holy Spirit. It talks about the Spirit in his fullness. And Jesus, as the Messiah, was given the Holy Spirit in his fullness. You can read about that in uh, John chapter 3. And the Son of Man is given the Holy Spirit so that he can in turn give it to his people. And we'll see that in just a bit. Also, he's described as the one who has the seven stars. Now, this one is a little bit more difficult because we're not really sure what the the stars are. Uh, In chapter 1, in the vision, uh, John is told that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. But we don't really know who those angels are. But we do have a clue in this, that each one of these letters is written to the angel of the church. And you you can see that in verse 1, to the angel of the church in Sardis write. And then beyond that, as you get into the letters themselves, (coughs) pardon me again, if you look into the, the language in which John originally wrote this, almost all of the pro, all of the persons used, I'm talking grammar here, is the second person singular you know that in english you have you which means just one person or you which means a lot of people and all throughout these seven letters he typically uses the you as a singular so he's talking to the whole church and so what we think there is that the angel somehow refers to the church as a whole the reason he does this is so that we know that the message is for us. It's not just for these individuals over here or these individuals over here. 
these letters and this one in particular is to everybody in the church. And each one of the letters ends with this same, uh, this same uh, phrase, to the one who has an ear, let him hear, or he must hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So these prophetic oracles, although they were directed to a particular church, John was saying, I'm not just directing this to you, but I'm directing this to all the churches, and by extension, he's directing this to all the churches throughout history, all the churches of Christendom. So as we read this message here, as we look at this message to start us, it is for us as a whole and us as individuals. We can't say, well, this is for somebody else. It's directed to us as a body, as a group. It's a collective message, and we must hear it that way. We must hear it as directed to us. It's a hard message, but we can't ignore it. And the fact that the uh, Son of Man has the seven stars in his hand tells us not only does he care for the church, but he also has full power and authority over that church. So that's the description of the Son of Man. He's the one who has the seven spirits and the one who has the seven stars. And now we come to the commendation. And you know what? There is none. There is no commendation for this church. <coughs> a little bit later on, we'll see that there's kind of a commendation, but it's, uh, it's described negatively, not positively. So it's kind of a backhanded sort of thing, but we'll see that a little bit later. But really, for this church as a whole, there's no commendation. He goes right into the rebuke. And he says to them, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive and you're dead. And you're dead. They were like Wesley. They were like zombies. They, it was a church that was practically dead. Now, we, we don't really know what it was that made the Son of Man say this to them. He doesn't give a lot of details. He doesn't point out anything in particular. But he does mention two things which give us an idea of what may, be, what may have been the issue with the church at Sardis. One is, you can see in verse 2, I have not found your works complete or fulfilled in the sight of my God. The church looked Christian, but it really wasn't. They lacked faith, and that's what made their works to be incomplete. They did nice things. They did good things. But it wasn't joined by a real living faith. Could have been a Lions Club or a Rotary Club or a Kiwanis Club or something like that. It's just They just did nice things, but... It was not connected with faith. It was an emptiness. We, a church can be very, very active, but it can still be dead. And the Son of Man wants us to watch out for that very thing against being active but dead. When we lived in Louisville, we discovered that 
a lot of times we'd have these straight line wind storms that would go through the area. Typically the uh, tornadoes would be either to the north of us in southern Indiana or to the south of us in Bullock County or E-Town, but seldom were the tornadoes in Louisville. But we did get a lot of straight line winds. In one year, we got a storm that went right through our neighborhood. Our street wasn't hit, but the very next street over, Woodburn Avenue, the storm went right down there, and it took down a lot of oak trees. And there must have been 10 to 12 huge oak trees that just were taken right down, and they either fell on cars or they fell on homes, or they fell on cars and homes at the same time. Just all kinds of damage from this one straight-line windstorm. And as my wife and I walked around and we looked at the devastation and later looked at the cleanup, one of the things that we noticed is a lot of these trees were very hollow. A lot of these oak trees. Well, there's not much in the middle. They looked good. They looked alive on the outside, but they were just rotting out from the core, and that's what made them so susceptible to the wind coming and knocking them over. And that's what the church at Sardis was like. They looked good, but they were dead to the core. The other note that we can uh, say about them is, is from that kind of offhanded um, commendation. And we see that in verse 4. Yet you still have a few names or a few people in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And the, the idea of uh, the, the garments is that the, the, the garments, the fine linen or the white raiment, it stands for the righteous acts of the saints, we're told in Revelation. And so to soil the garments must be unrighteous acts. And what he's saying is that you, you're producing actually the works of the flesh. So can we have that next slide there for, uh, in Galatians chapter 5? Listen to what Paul has to say about the works of the flesh. Okay, That is what soiled garments look like. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do or practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what it means to soil your garments. It means to produce unrighteous acts, the, the works of the flesh. And it's possible not only for a church to look alive and have do nice things, it's also possible for a local church to be filled with unrighteous people. And the Son of Man warns us not to be that church not to be the kind of people that produce those acts. So he has commands for them. Uh, and he has five, five different imperatives. And wake up, strengthen, remember, keep, repent. 
Those are the five commands that he gives to this particular church. The first one is interesting. Wake up. Now Sardis, the city of Sardis, had a very interesting history to it. Uh, long before John wrote to it, uh, Sardis was the capital of the kingdom of Lydia, and its king was a guy named Croesus. If you've ever heard the phrase, riches Croesus, that's where it comes from. If you haven't heard the phrase, that's all right. They had a king once named Croesus who was very rich. Uh, and this was about 550 years B.C. And at one point during uh, Croesus' reign, Cyrus the Great, and this is a Cyrus that's talked about in the Bible, Cyrus the Great attacked the kingdom of Lydia and then attacked the city. And the city had a citadel or acropolis up on a spur that came out of Mount Tamalus. So just imagine this mountain range ending with a spur coming off of it, a little bit lower. But on this spur, this high height, was built the Acropolis with tall walls. And so the, the Greek historian, a man named Herodotus, writes this about the uh, siege of Sardis. He says, On the 14th day of the siege, Cyrus made proclamation that he would give a reward to the man who should first mount the wall. After this, he made an assault, but without success. His troops retired, but one Hyroides resolved to approach the citadel and attempt it at a place where no guards were ever set. On this side, the rock was so precipitous and the citadel so impregnable that no fear was entertained of its being carried in this place. Hyroides, however, had observed a Lydian soldier descend the rock to retrieve a helmet that had rolled down from the top and having seen the man pick it up and carry it back, thought over what he had witnessed and he formed his plan. He climbed the rock himself and other Persians followed in his track until a large number had mounted to the top and thus Sardis was taken. They thought that the city was impregnable, so they did not watch it completely, and the city was taken. The odd thing is that the same exact thing happened about 330 years later when Antiochus the Great came against the city of Sardis. The city was taken the same way somebody climbed up to a spot where the people in the city would never think that they could be uh, entered in. And so when John says to the people of Sardis, wake up, that has some historical significance to it because they had a history of sleeping through things where they should have been awake and they should have been alert. And he says, not only wake up, but he says, strengthen the things that are about to die. And the way that, the way that John words this and, and the grammar that he used, it's, it's strengthen the things that have been in the process of dying or the things that are on life support. Strengthen those things that haven't quite died yet. How to do that? That's where the imperatives come in. First of all, he said, remember 
remember what you have received and heard. Throughout the New Testament, um, the apostles talk about the tradition that was passed down. And by tradition, we don't, he, they didn't mean by it the same thing as we understand by tradition. We, uh, we think about, you know, certain rites and rituals and traditions that people observe that don't have any meaning. But in the New Testament context, the tradition was something that was passed down from Christ to the apostles, to their followers, to their followers. And the things that they have heard are the things that were taught to them. And he, so he says, remember, remember what, you ha what has been passed down to you. Remember what you have been taught. And this is why, I don't need to tell you this, but I will remind you of it. This is why we consider the Bible to be such an important thing. Because it contains what has been passed down. It contains what we need to be taught. It contains God's message to us. Now, God's message is primarily a message about his son who came and who died for us. But because he came and died for us and rose from the dead and was exalted to the right hand of the God, the Father Almighty, he demands our obedience as his people. There's no way that we can ignore this person who has been exalted to the right hand of God the Father. He is our Lord. He is our King. We cannot claim to have him as our Savior, but say, you know what, I'm just going to go and do whatever I want. It's not, the, the Bible does not know anything of a Christian like that. It's, it, it's, it, the, the two are antithetical. And then he says, not only to remember, or stay awake, strengthen, remember, but keep. And that word keep is, it's the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 28, 20, where he says, all authority has been given unto me. Now go, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to keep everything that I have commanded you. And when the apostles spoke the word and preached the word and passed down the word, they were passing on what Christ had originally told them. And so obeying the scripture is the same as obeying the, the apostles, and it's the same as obeying the word of Christ, what he gave to his, his 12. That is how they are to strengthen what remains the little the little bit of life that's left there that's how it is to be blown back into full full-blown life to strengthen to remember to keep and to repent and you know it's only the holy spirit that can allow us to do that we need the holy spirit to do all those things but fortunately for us our lord the son of man has been given the Holy Spirit in all fullness, and he pours it out on us so that we can remember and we can stay awake and keep and repent. That's why he pours out the Spirit on us to make his dead church live unto repentance. And lastly, let's look at the command to the one who, or the promise to the one who conquers. And he says there, in, and this is in verse 5, 
The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. A and as you look through the, the book of Revelation, it seems to be very evident that the white garments stand for the saints in their perfection. Once they, once they are with Christ, once they uh, either have died and they're with Christ or at the end after Christ returns, what you see with the white garments is this is the description of the saints. And it's over and over throughout Revelation. And it, the fine linen or the white garment stands, as I mentioned before, John mentions it in chapter 19, it stands for the righteous acts of the saints. And as we walk with him in this life, keeping our garments unstained, what we are, and none of us do it perfectly, right? But as we walk with him in this life, keeping our garments unstained, trusting on the Holy Spirit, repenting when we need to, what we are doing is we are practicing for that day when we will wear those white garments, that fine linen, and we will be with him. And our walk in this life is a rehearsal for that wonderful walk in the next life. He also says, I will never blot out his name from the book of life. And, and this is the kind of thing that keep gets people's attention. This is the kind of thing that makes people say, what, wait a minute, what's he talking about here? That this doesn't match up with, 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 with what I've been taught. This doesn't kind of fit with the doctrine that I know. Uh, now, somebody might suggest, and it has been suggested, that this idea of not wiping out the name from the book of life, what it means is that, is that everybody who's ever lived has their name written in the book of life, and if they die without accepting Christ, then their name gets erased. And I don't agree with that, and I don't think you should agree with it either. I don't think that's the idea that the Son of Man is giving to us here. And, and here's one good reason, is that throughout the book of Revelation, you read about the book of life, but you read about it from two different perspectives. There are those whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, and those whose names have been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. And that's very clear. You have a group whose names have not been written in the book of life, and a group whose names have been written in the book of life. But here, all of a sudden, he throws out this thing about, I'm not going to wipe out his name from the book of life. What, what's he mean by that? Uh, is, it, is it three groups? Is it two? How, how do we... How do we make this jive with what we've been taught? And here's, how, and here's what I think John is saying to us, and the son of man before John, and that is that the, in, in the Old Testament, God's people was a covenant community. And in the New Testament, God's people was also a covenant community. And you would have, you would find in the covenant community, you would find unfortunately, imposters. People who looked apart, but really weren't. People who did, said and did all the right things, but it just wasn't enough. People whose profession was not real. People whose commitment was false. 
Jesus talked about such people. He says, in the last day, people will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do miracles in your name? Didn't we cast out uh, demons in your name? Didn't we do these mighty works in your name? And Jesus says, and I will say to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. The apostle, or the, the, the writer of the Hebrews, in a couple places, talks about people who, who actually tasted of the Spirit, but then fell away. And so I, I think what we have here is the idea that, that you will find within the covenant community those whose profession is false. And I think that's what's meant by Jesus saying, I will wipe their name or I'll blot out their name from the book of life. Actually, he says it in a negative way. I'll not blot out their name from the book of life. Now, those, those are the people who overcome. He'll not blot out their name. But what he will do is I will confess his name before the Father and before the angels. And what we need to see is those two statements as being the opposite of each other. Okay, they're two sides of the same coin. Okay, I'll confess his name before the Father and his angels. It's just kind of the opposite way of saying I'll not blot out his name in the book of life. The two are there. Why would, why would Jesus say something like that? Why would he put something in the word that would possibly cause us this kind of angst or anguish here? I think I know the reason. You know, our Lord wants his people to have assurance. Each one of us can have the absolute assurance that we belong to him because Christ died for us. No, for no other reason, but Christ died for us. He wants his people, he wants us to have assurance. But at the same time, the Son of Man does not want anybody within that confessing community to be presumptuous. You see the difference there? You, you, you have to have both. A as you look through the scripture, you, th they're both there. Assurance is there, but don't be presumptuous is there. And that's what the message that we have here from Sardis is. Look at this promise. He says, the one who conquers, the one who overcomes in this way, the one whose garments are not soiled, He will walk with me in white and I will confess his name before my father and before the holy angels. That is just a wonderful, wonderful promise. It's one that we can count on. We can count on it because we have made our, we have washed our robes in the blood of the lamb as John says later on in chapter 7 of the Revelation. Your robes have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. You can have the assurance that you will walk with him in white. But don't be presumptuous. Let's pray. Our great God and our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son. We thank you for all that he has done for us. And we pray that we might serve him and we might serve him gladly.
and willingly. May we hear your word and may we put your word into practice. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.